welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Daniel Epps, Associate Professor of Law at Washington University St. Louis School of Law. We will discuss his draft article, Checks and Balances in the Criminal Law. So welcome to the show, Dan. Uh, thanks for having me, Brian. And I'm, I'm sorry to uh, inform your listeners that I have a little bit of a cold that is making my voice not quite as mellifluous as it might be otherwise. <laughs> well, I appreciate you soldiering through the cold to do to do this interview. A- anything um, and- for you. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. You know that you're like my podcasting hero, and that this podcast wouldn't exist if if it weren't for you. It's sort of like the inspiration for me to start doing it myself. So, well, I, I appreciate that. I find that hard to believe. I'm sure you would have found a way to create this podcast uh, no matter what uh, happened in the universe. But I really, really appreciate you saying that. Um, so I really enjoyed reading your article, um, and, and I found it like really provocative, but also pretty, pretty convincing, I got to say. Um, but, but for listeners who aren't maybe as familiar with some of the background concepts that you're wrestling with in the article, I I mean, I wonder if we could kind of give them, kind of situate them in the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. But let me just, let me just say one other thing for people who are, who are not academics, um, uh, basically, I, I've for whatever reason I've never been able to write an article that hasn't been called provocative, and provocative I think is the kind of academic nice way of saying like completely, you know, betcha crazy. <laughs> um, so uh, just just keep that in mind. Um, <clears throat> but basically, the, you know, the paper is about um, the idea of the separation of powers in criminal law, and it's an idea that I think a lot of people just intuitively think is really important. And if you were to say, if I were to say something like judge, jury, and executioner in one person, that seems really scary. Or we talk about, you know, totalitarian societies where they have sort of politically dominated criminal justice systems, that seems really scary. And we think, oh, we've got to have separation of powers. We've got to have uh, a prosecutor and a, who's, who's prosecuting violations of laws passed by an independent legislature and uh, interpreted by an independent judge. And then a jury has to figure out whether you... Uh, have actually committed the crime and so forth. And that's supposed to be a really important protection for liberty. But I have this kind of bad quality, which is I like to sort of go after things that everyone else um, thinks are totally obviously true and sort of ask why. I'm, I'm kind of, it's, it's kind of like a, a three-year-old's approach to legal scholarship is like everyone just says something and I'm just like, why, 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 why? I wouldn't why? know anything about this, and, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, I've always been a little puzzled by um, our attitude towards uh, the separation of powers and and uh, because it's something that we just always say it's really important and I, I always just sort of said well what is it that's important how is it important how does it protect uh, the things that we care about and so um, it's something I've been puzzling over for a few years and I finally um, last year kind of got got my act together and wrote this piece, uh, which I've continued to revise, and it's when I've been really kind of letting simmer for a long time. And what I was trying to figure out is, um, why do we care about the separation of powers You know, in criminal law? The idea that we're going to separate power over criminal justice between different decision makers or maybe different government institutions. Why do we care about that and what is important about it? And let's kind of break down all the arguments. And in the course of doing that, I came to think that there's actually two different ideas um, that we tend to think of as um, the same, but they're actually quite distinct and they point in different directions. And one is the idea of what we call separation of powers. And um, that's an idea that, you know, 
traces its way back to uh, the French philosopher Montesquieu, who sort of said, it's really important that you have the different powers of government be in different hands. And he said, you know, let's legislature, executive, judiciary. So basically government exercises different kinds of functions and that we don't want those to be kind of like mixed up in the same person. We got to keep those separate, right? So that's one idea. That's that's the kind of pure idea of separation of powers. Different powers, different people. Um, but then there's this other idea that's uh, very much tied up with the American understanding of constitutional law, um, which is uh, something we call checks and balances, right? And we often think of these are the same uh, the same thing. We you, people will say phrases like separation of powers and checks and balances. They'll kind of run them all together as one idea, uh, but I think that they're actually pretty different. And checks and balances is has a different intellectual tradition. Uh, it goes actually much further. Um, the you can trace it back to uh, ancient Greece. Um, and, and earlier, and th- this is the idea that <clears throat> we're going to take the power of government, and we're going to divide it between different interests, and they're going to check each other. They're going to make sure that no one person or faction or group is able to use the power of government to kind of dominate everybody else. And the thing that is different about the separation of powers idea is that checks and balances isn't necessarily invested in dividing government power by function, right? You could say, uh, we're going to have um, three different legislatures and they're all going to legislate, say, but uh, we're going to give put different people in each of the different three different legislatures. And they're different strategies. And what my paper ultimately ends up concluding is that the checks and balances thread in American constitutional law is actually much more important and the one that we should be cherishing and seeking to maximize than this, the formal separation of powers thread. We should be caring less about ensuring that the power of criminal justice is parceled out among these functionally differentiated institutions and more focused on ensuring that power of criminal justice is divided between decision makers um, that have some incentive to check each other. Well, why do you think it is that there's this prevalent tendency to sort of think of separation of powers and checks and balances as being similar or even different expressions of the same thing? I mean, is it tied to the way that kind of constitutional government was implemented in the United States? Yeah, I think it's it's um, basically – it's because our system happens to merge those two strategies and we tend – people <clears throat> just everywhere tend to sort of assume that the way things are done where they are is just the only way it could possibly be done. And um, the Madisonian approach <clears throat> was to draw on these two different traditions and to kind of combine them. There's this one tradition that ha- envisioned uh, different government power you know, divided among, uh, up among different interests in society and often divided among classes in society divided between uh, the, a king and the nobles and the common people, and they're going to check each other. And then this other tradition uh, of dividing power among function. Um, and he kind of scrambled the two of them. He said, we're going to have separation of powers on these functional lines, but then we're going to kind of actually break the rules of separation of powers because we're going to give uh, the functionally differentiated branches of government this checking ability. So we're going to, you know, normally the the president's job, he's part of the executive, is just to do executive stuff, right? We're actually gonna we're actually gonna make the president a little bit of a legislature, legislator, by uh, allowing him to veto legislation, uh, and so forth. And there's other examples like this, these kind of deviations from the purest form of separation of powers that 
are what we call checks and balances. Now, we tend to just think this whole system is the whole thing. It's it's separation of powers and checks and balances. But I think it's really important and useful intellectually to kind of part, you know, uh, be a little bit more specific about what exactly they did and why they did it. Now, the Madisonian theory was that if we do this, um, government officials are going to really care about kind of maximizing their own power. Ambition is going to check ambition, and that's going to cause um, Congress to check the president and so forth. And I think you know people in the last couple decades in uh, American constitutional law have, have come around to the view that maybe that wasn't right. Um, and there's this very famous article uh, by Daryl Levinson and Rick Pildes called Separation of Parties, Not Powers, where they say, um, look, um, the separation of powers between the president and Congress doesn't actually do that much work when both of those institutions are held by the same political party because Congress doesn't have an inherent incentive to maximize its own power. When Congress is in Republican hands, it has incentive to maximize whatever Republicans want to do. When Congress is held by Democrats, it has the incentive to maximize what Democrats want to do. And when the president is also a member of the same party, they're going to cooperate and not compete. Mm, mm. Well, so, I mean, I found that really compelling, right? Because, I mean, I do feel like there's this unfortunate tendency to sort of look back to Madison as being a trump card for how things are going to work irrespective of like what 250 years of history tell us about how things actually work. And it, it does seem quite convinced, you know, that like that this sort of the kind of basic version or kind of simplified version of separation of powers and what it's going to do doesn't seem to do what Madison thought it would. But a, a, a lot of contemporary criminal law scholars have looked to separation of powers as being important to both kind of maintaining the legitimacy of the system and also to pushing forward criminal justice reform. And I wonder if you could like spend a minute kind of putting a good face on <laughs> that approach so we kind of have a sense of why other people think that this is the appropriate approach. Yeah, so I think <clears> – <throat> You know, a number of people have written about this, and they've written some really um, important pieces. And in, in the piece, I engage a lot with um, work by uh, Professor Rachel Barco uh, of NYU, uh, who's written, I think, you know, the kind of the best article uh, on this topic. And I think where they're coming from is um, uh, that kind of work is coming from is a recognition that like this is the system we have, and that in practice, our system doesn't seem to honor. Uh, its own promises. In practice, in the way criminal justice um, works in, in America, both uh, at the in the federal level and in the states, um, we don't really have a lot of practical separation of powers because the rise of plea bargaining um, has largely meant uh, that most power is, for practical purposes, exercised by prosecutors, and that. Uh, because prosecutors can sort of threaten to bring charges, serious charges against you to get you to plea, and that sort of bypasses <clears throat> a trial, bypasses the jury, bypasses um, significant judicial involvement. And uh, what we don't we don't have is the kind of multi institution checking uh, that I think that the system envisioned. Now, I think where I diverge from some people that have written about this is I'm a little bit more willing to be skeptical of the original design. I, you know, I think some people say, well, look, you know, this is not the way the system was supposed to work. And I say, look, we should expect this to happen because the different institutions, legislature, 
executive judiciary, they don't really have good incentives to provide the kind of checking on the growth of criminal justice, on abuse of power in criminal justice um, that we would like them to, that they have incentives to cooperate. Um, and there's an idea here that I can trace back uh, uh, to Bill Stutz. He wrote this famous article called The Pathological Politics of Criminal Law. And he says, um, in criminal law, uh, legislatures draft broad laws because they're in cooperation with prosecutors. They're basically just drafting broad laws to delegate power to prosecutors. And to the extent we have a separation of powers between these two institutions, it's not really working. Um, I think, and I think it's an incentive story. Mm. I think we don't have sufficient incentives for the different branches to really be providing the kind of checking we want. And checking uh, is the ultimate goal. Mm, mm. And separation of powers uh, along functional lines is maybe one strategy that's designed to get us that checking. Uh, but I think it doesn't do a very good job of getting us the checking that we want. Right, right. So it seems like a lot of people are, it's almost like epiphenomenal to what we really want to accomplish mm -hmm. in a sense that like, yes, we're seeing this move toward a unitary uh, institution making all of the real decisions, but it's the decision-making part that's important or rather the sort of the ability to block decisions made by another participant, not the simple fact that the roles are dispersed among different institutions. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, even if, you know, even if all the different institutions are playing their part, it's not actually going to protect liberty, you know, and do all the other stuff that, you know, we want separation of powers to do. Separation of powers is an instrumental good. It's not sort of an end unto itself. I think most people, most, not everybody, but most people agree. Um, and so you have to have some theory for why separating out the the powers into these different kind of functional branches is actually going to promote those values, is actually going to lead to, you know, fairer criminal justice, less, fewer abuses of power and so forth. And what I tend to say is, look, there's no particular reason to think that these different institutions are going to have different interests and they might all agree. They might all agree. Let's, let's have an unfair criminal justice system or whatever. And um, we need to more directly attack that problem by figuring out checking mechanisms um, that are more likely to get us the results that we really care about. So one example of that is um, our system uh, – because we're so caught up in this idea of the functional separation of powers, this sort of uh, Montesquieu vision of separation of powers between the different functions of government, um, we actually don't really like – we don't like it when one institution sort of checks another institution's homework. Um, you know, So courts often say, well, you know, people go to court and they say, hey, you know, the prosecutor shouldn't have brought charges or the prosecutor should have brought these charges and didn't or you know the, the this law is is badly written and the legislature should have included this defense but didn't and courts usual response to those kind of arguments is to say sorry not our job right separation of powers we it's not for us to rewrite legislature uh, legislation it's not for us to um, be super prosecutors and and review charging decisions and my answer to that is who cares what, what whose function it is? Um, checking might involve everybody, multiple institutions performing the same function, duplicating functions that could provide better checking than just saying, "Oh, that's not that's not my that's not my job." Mm -hmm. Well, so what would a criminal justice system 
focused on checks and balances rather than separation of powers look like? I mean, can you can you think of any sort of features that would that would be most likely to promote that kind of kind of institutional checking or those kinds of institutional reforms? Or like what would we expect to see in a system if we kind of prioritize checks and balances instead of separation of powers? Yeah. And I, so I, so I offer some kind of thoughts on this in the paper, but um, I, what I say is, is kind of vague. I sort of say, these are some ideas, right? And so I'm not going to give you the kind of answers for everything. Um, but, <clears throat> but one of those would be, you know, for example, we would probably be being more open to institutions that, you know, check each other's homework, that perform the same job. Um, that's one way. Um, but more generally, we'd want to figure out how to diffuse power over criminal justice among decision makers who actually have some interest in checking each other. And so, and I think we need to recognize that we don't get that just by giving people labels, right? We don't get that by having um, three different decision makers who are all sort of drawn from the same political class and giving one of them the job, the name judge, and one of them the name legislator, and one of them the name prosecutor. Um, the way we do that is we really actually be more focused on uh, who um, is making criminal justice decisions, where those people are drawn from in society. And, and so, you know, one of the things I think, you know, we have to be really attentive to is uh, where do we draw boundaries? Um, who votes on criminal justice decisions? Uh, are those decisions made at the city level, the neighborhood level, the county level, the state level? Um, because the answers to that question are going to give us quite different results in terms of the kind of criminal justice that we have. I do think um, I end up very sympathetic to juries, um, which uh, I think some people like, you know, because as part of this idea of the separation of powers, I think the juries are are great uh, because that they are uh, a check. And um, what makes them great is they bring in a range of different interests from society into decision-making and criminal justice. Um, they bring in, uh, you know, poor people, rich people, white people, black people, you know, all a range of different voices, and it gives them a veto over the imposition of criminal punishment. Now, as it happens, we have really limited the jury's power. And I think we've limited the jury's power because we're so transfixed by um, this idea of the functional separation of powers, because we think everybody has to have one job and that's their job. And jury's job is to find facts. Now, I was going to say, if you were going <clears> to <throat> find the, the appropriate job for 12 people basically pulled off the street at random, <laughs> fact finding doesn't seem like it's the thing that you would choose. But what might those people be good at? Well, they might be good at making normative judgments. They might be good at determining when punishment is fair or unfair or excessive or insufficiently harsh or those kinds of kind of normative judgments. And our system has very, very carefully taken that power away from juries uh, because we think it's not their responsibility. It's the legislature's job to figure out how um, excessive a punishment is or isn't. And I think that doesn't make any sense. I think we should be much more willing to let juries make those kind of judgments, let them refuse to convict if – punishment is excessive. And we don't do that at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, it does seem like there's a way in which people kind of conflate juries into 
judicial branch. And therefore, the limits on the authority of the judicial branch seem to be imputed to juries almost in a way. Yeah, uh, absolutely. They, that, that, you know, I think that they just think that this is – they're in the judiciary. It's, it's, and so only stuff that falls under that um, judicial aspect <clears throat> are their job and um, that includes, you know, Basically, that that seems to be finding facts, and you know we don't we also don't even let them interpret the law. We used we used to do that that a lot more regularly, um, but juries haven't been really given that authority in a long time because that's sort of been wrested away from them by judges. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like it's almost like a kind of a tacit realization that juries are doing a lot of that checking anyway, at least in the tiny number of cases that actually make it. <laughs> To, to juries, right? Yeah, although we make we make it really hard for them to do that, right? So, um, so one example, and this relates to uh, another paper I have in progress um, that I hope to hope to have a draft of, and co-writing it with Will Ortman and Wayne State, um, where that's about uh, the idea of sh- you know the fact that our system we shield the jury from any knowledge of penalties. So, in you know, we we say that juries are allowed to nullify by acquitting even in the face of evidence of guilt. That's just sort of a power of the jury. Our system is a little kind of inconsistent of how it feels about that power. For the most part, we think it's bad, but it's kind of just an unavoidable result of juries. Um, but we really don't make it easy for them to do that. And one of the ways we make it don't make it easy for them to do that is by very carefully shielding them from any knowledge of the implications of their decisions. So let's say there's a crime with a pretty high mandatory minimum. Um, we're not going to tell the jury that even though it strikes me as quite relevant to the decision they're being asked to make as uh, on behalf of the community, does this person deserve to be convicted of this crime knowing it's going to have this very severe consequence? Mm, mm, mm. Well, so, I mean, what are the implications of this shift you're suggesting? I mean, if our focus should be on checks and balances, do we need to have separation of powers at all in order to maintain a kind of functional liberty protecting uh, uh, criminal justice system uh, or, or not? And are there examples of like institutions where that, that, that might work without having separation of powers but still having checking? Yeah, I think it depends on what exactly um, you mean by separation of powers, and I think that's one of the things that makes, you know, writing and, and sort of talking about this area so difficult is because of the kind of disagreement about terminology and terminological confusion. I I don't think we necessarily need to have the kind of formal Madisonian separation of powers um, that we see so much, where we have government power that's divided between uh, different institutions. Uh, at the level of kind of political institutions, a separately elected legislature and, and executive and an independent judiciary. I do think we need to have some diffusion of power between different decision makers. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be at the institutional level. Um, I do think that we might want some separation of functions between individual decision makers. It doesn't have to be at the institutional level. And so there are some examples I, I get into in the paper a little bit um, about uh, different contexts where we have kind of functioning criminal justice systems, but that don't, you know, strictly respect um, the traditional separation of powers uh, in its all of its ideals that we that we get from Madison. So I talk a little bit about military criminal justice, and uh, in military criminal justice, uh, you see um, a lot of the relevant uh, adjudication uh, of uh, offenses by service members 
are they're adjudicated within the confines of the executive branch. And there are various kinds of rules insulating certain kind of decisions from, you know, what's called unlawful command influence uh, and things like that. Um, but it's certainly a much narrower level of, uh, you know, degree of separation of powers than we see, um, than, than we're told, you know, by Madison that has to be, that we should be following elsewhere. And, you know, there are problems uh, in, sometimes with the military criminal justice system, but there, it also works um, some of the time. Uh, and there are things that that work fine about it. Um, <clears throat> likewise, I talk a little bit about uh, some comparative uh, law. I talk a little bit about other countries. I talk about uh, England, um, you know, which is a country that doesn't have at the sort of level of institutions doesn't have the same kind of division of power between the executive branch and the legislative branch. Basically, Parliament has plenary control over everything, and they've they've developed a criminal justice system that's sort of ultimately accountable to uh, a parliamentary officer. Um, and nonetheless, it it still mostly functions. So, I mean, I don't think the result is you say, okay, let's just have one kind of like, you know, criminal justice Fuhrer who gets to decide everything. And uh, that seems bad. Um, I'm not there. <laughs> we want some kind of diffusion of power. Um, but I think it opens up, thinking about it this way, maybe opens up more possibilities um, that uh, might not seem available otherwise. And um, particularly, it, it sort of shows that maybe some things that we think are important maybe are not that important. So I talk a little bit about uh, a case called, from the Supreme Court, called uh, called Gundy from last term. And this is a case about, <clears throat> is it okay for Congress to delegate to the Attorney General the decision of uh, when to make certain kinds of obligations under the Sex Offender Registration and Notification, Notification Act retroactive? And the formalists on the Supreme Court and Justice Gorsuch in particular um, uh, think this is a really big deal and that uh, this is a big threat to liberty because we're violating the traditional separation of powers by letting someone in the executive branch basically determine the scope of a criminal law. And my response to that is just to say, who cares, right? Who cares? Why do we think this is this this is going to protect liberty the answer to this question is going to protect liberty more or less. Do we have any reason to think the attorney general is going to make worse decisions or better decisions? I have no idea. If we say that the, they, the Congress can't do this, maybe they'll just pass criminal statutes that are even broader and just criminalize more mm. things. Is that better? I don't know. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't get the impression that Congress likes sex offenders any better than the attorney general does. No, I, I, you know, and it may be that like the attorney general will make finer delegations. I mean, we just don't know, and there's just nothing about the the formal definitions of the institutions gives you kind of any answer to the question. And so, I, I'm, it, you can think of this paper in some ways as kind of a response to this, you know, increasingly formalist movement of which I, I see Justice Gorsuch as the most <clears throat> vocal proponent um, that. That sort of insists, you know, the separation of powers is super, super important to protecting liberty, and you know, it, it just doesn't for me ever get off the ground because they don't ask the why question, mm. and um, I don't think that there are good answers. Why, you know, when you get into these kind of practical disputes, why do you think that dividing power in this way is going to protect liberty? Is there any reason to think that in practical terms? I don't think that there's a great answer. Mm. Well, one thing I thought was really interesting as well was returning to this idea that, you know, what we call separation of powers ends up in a lot of ways just being separation of parties was the sort of difference between political actors and kind of like uh, agency 
actors. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the potential role of sort of agency checking in relation to some of of these issues. Like, I mean, can like non-political actors play an important role in kind of instantiating some of the kind of checking mechanisms you think might be beneficial? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's another um, sort of interesting uh, dimension or interesting angle that I try to get into the paper is that um, why, we don't necessarily have to assume that all the kinds of checking that we want has to come at from different political institutions. And so <clears throat> there's various stories that have been told um, you know, about how uh, even within agencies, within sort of single political institutions, like uh, within an administrative agency, um, there's a fair amount of diffusion of power between, say, uh, political decision makers and civil servants who have some job protections and they have incentives and interests that might look a little different um, from those of political decision makers. And John Michaels um, uh, at UCLA has has told a very interesting story, written a very interesting piece about how uh, this is kind of a new version of the separation of powers, um, the sort of post-Neal Deal version, rather than having the kind of separation of powers happening uh, between Congress and and the executive. We're having kind of some checking between um, the political leadership and agencies and then the career uh, civil servants. Uh, And then also um, the public plays a role. And uh, the public can sort of be aware of what what the agencies are doing and kind of voicing uh, their preferences too. And I think that both Michaels and I would agree that that what matters is that you have different interests kind of providing some checking, and that's much more important than the labels we attach to them. So, Dan, I, I mean, I, I found this way of framing the question of how we should think about um, maintaining the sort of uh, limits on the scope of criminal justice authority of of the government, pretty compelling. But I, you know, there's a lot of people who have been pushing this uh, this separation of powers angle for a long time. So, I mean, I wonder how you think the people who have that kind of perspective, both scholars who sort of look at this problem through a separation of powers lens, and maybe even formalists like Justice Gorsuch at all, uh, who, you know, have a sort of their own version of that lens, like, how do you think they're likely to respond to the kind of arguments you make in this paper? So uh, I think that's a really interesting question. I think that um, <clears throat> one response uh, I may get, you know, from people who have been pushing sort of separation of powers angle is just to say, well, you know, you're right that checking is most important, but our constitution provides that checking through separation of powers into functionally differentiated branches, and so we should at least enforce that. Um, because the kinds of solutions you have on the table are not really available. Um, <clears throat> my answer to that is to say, well, you know, I don't see any reason why we should care about enforcing the functionally differentiated branches. And so there, I don't see that, you know, I'm not persuaded that that's an argument for being formalist uh, about separation of powers. And there's other things that we could do even within the confines of our constitutional system <clears throat> that would be more consistent with what I'm arguing for, like um, changing how we think about the jury, giving the jury more power, um, and other things like that. Now, what would someone like Justice Gorsuch say? 
I've, I've wondered that myself and I, you know, certainly have not had the opportunity uh, to uh, ask him. I don't expect to uh, anytime soon. Um, but um, because I read his opinions and I'm very puzzled by them because he really seems to have, he writes as if he's really kind of drunk the Kool-Aid uh, on just this idea that our separation of powers, the Madisonian design is like really, really important and it's like the key. It is the key to protecting liberty. And I just think that that's wrong. I don't think that makes any sense. I think it has no basis in sort of realistic theory uh, about the, w- the way the world functions. And so I just don't get it. Um, and the thing that I don't really know is, is it just rhetoric that has some other justification for it? Or does he, and, and like, you know, and maybe like Justice Scalia before him, who did the same kind of thing, who sort of extolled the virtues of this design, does he really, really believe it? And and would he care if I were to say, look, you know, this may be what the founder's design was, but it's just wrong. It just doesn't make any sense. Would he care? Or maybe he would just say, look, um, but nonetheless, it's the Constitution they wrote and we're stuck with it, so we got to enforce it. I'm not sure. Hmm. Mm, yeah, no, I, I kind of wonder myself, and I guess we'll we'll see as we learn more about Justice Gorsuch's perspective in the coming years. That we will, for better or for worse. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Dan. All right, thanks for having me, Ryan. Yeah, it was, I was, I love it. And um, just FYI, law review editors, this piece will be available pretty soon, so you should definitely snap it up. Please do. Can't deny that cut flowers given time will surely die. They'll do fine with candles and some wine, but it's a crime. Yeah, it's a crime that you're kissing on that girl for all to see. And it's a crime. That she's going home with you and not with me It's plain to see That boxes of candy will make you sigh But confidentially They'll just rot her pretty teeth And it's a crime Yeah, it's a crime That you're kissing on that girl for all to see Yeah, it's a crime That she's going home with you and not with me It has been proved that pups and kittens too will make you swoon But it stands to reason that they'll just give her fleas and it's a crime 
Yeah, it's a crime That you're kissing on that girl for all to see Yeah, it's a crime That she's going home with you and not with me